On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about religion and money, something that is sometimes, maybe often uncomfortable, but this is a slightly different look at it. What financial economic impact does religion, all religions, have on the broader Canadian economy? We're going to talk about that. And Don Robertson joins us to talk about the Stanley Cup playoffs and the U.S. Open and Speedos. Mm-hmm. Stick around if you can. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. When we talk about religion, and I know some of you are saying, wait a second, you're never supposed to talk about religion in polite company. Well, I disagree and we're about to. Um, anyway, when we talk about religion and we mention money in the same conversation, I think it's fair to say that in most people's minds, it's usually because of some disgraced TV evangelist who's been caught with his hand in the till or perhaps because of the wealth of the Catholic Church or something else to do with that. But there is a new study that is out that points the discussion about religion and money in a very different direction. And this study, which is by Cardus, which is a Christian think tank um, based here, says that religion in all of its forms, not just Christianity, but different religions, generates $67.5 billion, $67.5 billion of economic activity in Canada. And that's not just money that's going into churches or synagogues or temples. That's going into the economy in this country each year. So how did they reach this number? Where does this money come from? Where does the money go? Brian Dykman is the Vice President of External Affairs at Cardis that came up with this study. Brian, thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, as I say, when people, just before we get into this, when people hear about religion money, as I say, it usually is, or at least often it seems, is in a negative way. Why is that, do you think? I mean, is, are there so many cases or is there some other reason why so many people seem to affiliate the two in a bad way? Well, I think there are two reasons. I think the first is that the, the news media has a has a, an appetite for the sensational. We all want to uh, get drawn to the car wreck. And so I think that's true for all kinds of things, not just religion. The second thing is, and I think this is a, a good thing, is that there's a certain sense that you can really feel the hypocrisy that those who are saying that you should sell your goods and give them to the poor and so on, when they when they're seen uh, taking for themselves and in fact enriching themselves, there's a sense in which we all feel indignation about that. And I think there's something right about that, and I think we should own that. Um, in fact, we say in our paper there there isn't only just positive things that come from religion. There's times when it's used for uh, abuse and it's used for all kinds of things. But it's important to see the whole picture. And I think when you look at the whole picture, on balance, you find that the contributions made to the public by religion are significant, are massive, uh, and, and it's something that we should, I think, uh, think a little bit more closely about. I had never, until I read this piece, I had never really given a whole lot of thought to the idea of religion as an economic driver to the broader economy. You think of religion in other terms and spiritual or emotional or psychological or whatever terms, but the numbers that you are citing in this study are huge. Explain how we get to those numbers. Where do they come from? Right. So we have, we have actually three estimates. There's the low estimate, there's the middle estimate, and then there's the, the top estimate. The low estimate just takes into account the revenues of religious organizations. So churches, mosques, synagogues, most of these organizations submit um, uh, forms T3010s to the government, and so you can actually find the revenue for them. And so our low number, the $30 billion number, is just simply the revenues of those organizations. 
the high number is is the sort of let's throw everything at the wall. Anything that's associated with religion will put the uh, will attach that to the price tag, and that number is 690 billion. So we're talking about things like the incomes of religious people, etc. The number that we think is the is the most accurate, the most reasonable uh, estimate is 67.5 billion dollars. And that includes not just the revenues of religious organizations, but we, what we call the halo effect, the broader community contribution that these make. And when we're talking about things like that, we're talking about things like the counseling services they provide, the child care services they provide, things like the halal and kosher meat markets. So, you know, a classic example is on, on King Street in Hamilton. There's a kosher meat market um, that serves people who are, are Jewish, uh, and that's, that's food that they're... Um, they sell into that community. That's a contribution. That is a is a productive contribution to the economy in Canada. That's the type of thing that is included in that middle number. Some of the things that are mentioned here, and I know, as as you say, even within the, you've got the low, medium, and high in the big picture. Then in, within the 67.5, you've got also some things that are in there, low, medium, and high. And you mentioned things like Catholic schools and healthcare. Are those are those really part of the religious economy or are they because they're public funds, right? They are. They're public funds. But let's look at what, what they're going to. They're going to religious schools, religious hospitals. And if you look at the history of Canada's uh, social services, and even today, most of the social services that you'll find in Hamilton, many of them are religious based. So, for instance, mission services that provides all kind of uh, all kinds of service to uh, those who are on the streets, the Good Shepherd Center that does all kinds of work for, again, people who are addicted to drugs, uh, need affordable housing, Indwell, another major one in Hamilton. These are all religious organizations. And I think we've gotten into the habit of thinking of religion as something private. Um, you know, people will close their door and they'll pray. And this is, in for, of course, an important part of the formation of religious people. But the reality is that people take those deeply held beliefs and they go into the public and they serve their fellow citizens, the people that that many religions see as made in the image of God. And I think that's a, a deep public contribution, a major public contribution. And what we're trying to do is just show just how big that contribution actually is. Brian, I, I got to tell you, even as we talk about this, it sounds odd to be talking about economics and religion and mixing them and feeling like that sort of is comfortable because that's it, it's it's kind of the thing that I think for a lot of religious people they feel very uncomfortable about. Yeah, it's true. Um, but it's, it's it's also reality. I mean, what's interesting, I always kind of joke with people when you get uh, when you get married and you fall in love, you t- you don't really think about money, but at some point um, the two of you need to find a house, you need to find a place to live, you need to talk about how you're going to balance your budget. Um, and the same thing is true with religious communities. They have to they have to uh, have a place to worship. Uh, many of the people there, they have to buy goods. They have to buy pay for things like electricity, uh, audiovisual, all, all kinds of stuff like that. And that's just the stuff happening at the places of worship. More importantly, is the is the type of work that goes on in the society that that these religious communities are 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 a part of. You know, for instance. Um, a Sikh temple, uh, there's, a, there's a constant habit of feeding the poor on a regular basis. That food has to be bought from somewhere, um, and it has to be prepared. And I think this is just one of the things, is it's sort of hiding in plain sight. And what our, what our paper is trying to do is actually bring it to the fore to see just how much the, the contribution actually is. And you cite like the Sikh temple that feeds people and you cite the, in, in the story that I read, you cite the, uh, cite the um, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings that are held in churches in many cases or food banks that churches or synagogues have or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Would that, 
do you figure the value of this by looking at what it would cost if they weren't done there and society had to step in and do that? Is that how you measure what the value is? Yeah, so we actually did a paper on that as well. It was called the Halo Project, and it looked at what would be the replacement cost if all of these religious groups suddenly disappeared overnight, which, you know, which we hope doesn't happen. But if they did, and we said the government or some other person was going to come in and have to pay for them, what was interesting was that if you looked at it, every dollar in a religious congregation's budget, the surrounding community gets about $4.77 worth of benefit. These are people who are often volunteering their time. Um, so they're effectively working for free, working because they care for their neighbors. They're giving out of their out of their their wealth, their net uh, worth to give to others. And so, so what you see is a sort of multiplication effect. We call it the halo effect of religious communities um, across the city. And you can see it. I mean, I was dropping my kids off at school, and I was driving down Upper James, and you pass, for instance, uh, there's a center called Really Living. It's just just south of Rymel Road on Upper James, and they provide free oil changes to single parents. It's the type of thing that if you're a single parent, that that 40 or 50 bucks, whatever that oil change costs, could really set you back. And they said, look, we're going to do this small thing to help out our community. And they don't ask whether you're you're Christian, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Muslim. They just want to know if they can help. Would this... Would this money, though, some of this, would it not be cycling into the economy if it wasn't going through religious organizations, would it not be going into the economy anyway? In other words, how much of this is legitimately brand new money that otherwise wouldn't be there? Do we know? Well, no, I mean, I think the way you have to think about it is, look, um, we all make choices with the money that we have. So you're seeing this, in fact, with the with COVID. People are still generating money. The money is being spent less on things, for instance, like travel. People aren't going on planes going to Florida. Money is getting spent less on things like dining, uh, for instance. So you're going to see the GDP of those decline. And yes, the money is going to go elsewhere. That's always true with with uh, with any sort of economic flow. But in this case, what we're realizing is that people are actually putting that money towards it, uh, and they're doing this as part of their as part of their uh, living out as part of a citizen of Canada. And what's interesting is the way in which this money is being spent. Often it's being spent less on the selves of the individuals taking part, less the communities are actually less focused on themselves and actually quite focused on fellow citizens, regardless of whether those people share their religious beliefs. And so that's the interesting thing here, that with this type of expenditures, the benefit is actually going publicly um, e- even despite the fact that these are people operating out of, out of unique religious commitments in their own right. I think, I, I can't remember the exact number you said, but a moment ago you said it was like $4 to one or four fifty to a dollar coming in was the amount that you factor. Do we have any idea how that compares to other charities or other things that society does? Is it similar? Is it more? Is it less? So it's $4.77 worth of benefit. I mean, this is a, a typical um, multiplier benefit. I think what we, there are various groups that do that for various industries. I think in this particular case, what we were looking at was the question of social services, which are a little bit harder to measure um, because they're not, they're not market-based in the same way, if you know what I mean um, by that. So there are measures. And, and again, like we're not saying that religion is the only place that contributes to the economy. Businesses do it. Other organizations do it. Um, you know, for instance, the music industry will also say they contribute. They do. What we're trying to say is we often don't think about these commitments. We often don't think about these contributions when we think about religion. We think about other things, big issue questions, all the rest of that stuff. And I think those are important. I'd love to just have a, a brief conversation about that. But what we're trying to say is, look, this is actually a a significant economic part. You look around the city and you look at some of the churches 
um, that are hosting uh, childcare places. I, on my way to work, uh, we're on Young Street, and I go down right by St. Joseph's Hospital, which is, by the way, a religious hospital. Right next to it is Church of the Ascension, which is an Anglican church that has a, a daycare or a childcare center. Um, and it just happens all over the place. The more you start to look, the more you start to see. And that contribution is, is just everywhere. And you mentioned marketing, and I'll, I'll say this. I, I think, uh, quite honestly, um, a lot of these groups have not done a great job of marketing, but, but and there's a caveat on that, um, it's tricky, I think, for a lot of religious people because they are supposed to be doing this, doing their giving and doing their acts of charity quietly without trying to tell everybody how great they are by giving away their money, which makes it a bit of a conundrum to say, look how much we're doing without saying, look how much we're doing. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. In fact, in many religions, including my own, there's, there are actually um, prohibitions about tooting your own horn or blowing your own trumpet about how well you're doing. Um, but we're a think tank, and what we're trying to do is is to show uh, the public society that this is a real thing, but not only just to show society, but to start asking ourselves questions about, this has implications for other things, like zoning, like regulation, like how we treat one another, how we tolerate religion in the public square. And I think when we start asking those questions, we start to see that religion is a major contribution and largely for the good. And, and I think this is true. Um, you know, we've talked economically, but I think we, we need to also mention the fact that these communities are actually forming people in ways um, mostly that are good. And again, we want to acknowledge that there's all kinds of, of malformation that happens in religious communities. It comes out badly and it, it comes out in all kinds of different ways that that you know we hope will will end quickly and it and it does happen but but what when you start asking yourself how do we live together as a society what is what are the formative influences on our, on the way we view our fellow citizens and you start looking at the way religious communities teach uh, one another the, the importance of the dignity of your fellow citizen whether they're white whether they're indigenous you name it the fact that that person is made in the image of god there's actually a certain formative public good that takes place outside of the economic as well. And I think the, the economic contribution simply allows and manifests those deeper, I think, uh, religious commitments as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Animals that eat meat are carnivores. Animals that eat plants are herbivores or herbivores. What do you call an animal that eats both plants and meat? Speaking of eating all things... <laughs> Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty. And I mean, I don't mean all things at once. I just mean, you know, I'm not suggesting anything, just, you know, a, a man who enjoys a good meal. Fair? Um, well, if you want to talk about that, why don't we talk about you and his spiel again? <laughs> no, please, Don. The four people left listening who weren't already chased away by that one are going to flee. Um, no, I'm betting I'm uh, the only one listening at this point. <laughs> you know, there, there is nothing. There is nothing more distressing. I'm sorry, there really isn't than 98 percent of men wearing a speedo. If you're an Olympic swimmer you probably have the body to be able to wear one and, and, and look okay. And people can say, you know what? Sure. But Don, you and I, and everyone else listening have seen more than a few other guys who are not Olympic swimmers trying to wear it. And ugh, they are like, they are like people at the all nature resorts, the nudist colonies. Generally speaking, they're the last people in the world that should be walking around nude. 
which is a group <laughs> I would include myself in. And we do have two listeners. Susan and uh, Veronica are listening on the back porch. And you want to know what I'm wearing? I come out in T-shirts and shorts and quickly zip back in to throw a hoodie on and long pants because it's fall is uh, maybe only officially here tomorrow, but it's out in uh, Hooterville here. I'll tell you, it's already arrived. Uh, yes, and, w- and one more thing, just as before we leave the entire Speedo milieu, as it were, uh, a number of years ago, my wife and I were on a cruise and there was an, I will describe him as a late middle age gentleman. I don't know exactly how old he was. He looked to be in his mid seventies, I would guess, who um, was carrying around at least one spare tire. And um, as he walked into the pool on the ship, you could not see that he was wearing anything because of the frontage that was dangling down far enough that you thought he was nude. As he came out of the pool, trying to go up the ladder, it was clear that he had lots of girth, but less in the hip department. And looking at him now from behind, as he climbed up the ladder, that bathing suit headed South. And, um, there was just nothing good about the whole decision that guy wore to, uh, to throw that on that day. But, you know, each to their own. So we've okay. So we've now lost Veronica and Sue's. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just you and me, I think. All right. So let's move oh. to golf and talk about something else uh, entirely. And maybe golfers wear speedos. Maybe there's a golf tour where they wear speedos. I don't know. I hope not. Uh, I'm assuming you watched a little bit of the U.S. Open on the weekend. I watched that big kid hit that ball, 350 yards in the middle of the fairway which were 19 yards wide with more confidence than I've ever seen anybody do that. I remember when big John Daly, as he was called, and he's not, he was big, but he's not a tall, he's not like a six foot four guy was doing that and hitting it, not 300 yards. And now this guy, well, yes, I did watch the golf and I was quite impressed. He, um, yeah, he no uh, Bryson DeChambeau. For those who don't know, is sort of the um, they call him the mad scientist because he's a kid who, and he's a kid. I think he's twenty five. Um, a year ago, a year and a half ago, was not scrawny, but not like he is now. He went away last year and came back and put on fifty pounds, thirty or thirty five or forty apparently, which are muscle. And now he looks like the Incredible Hulk in golfing terms, which has led a lot of people to have a lot of different questions, Don. And we won't, um, I have no idea what to think, but there's been suspicions about how you put on that much girth and that much size. They say, you know, he just, he, and, he, and they're, they're, his trainer has been asked about this. He goes, man, he worked his butt off and he just pounded the weights in the gym and he had the body that allowed him to add that kind of muscle. So whatever, but yeah, you're right. He can now hit the ball about 19 miles and, uh, some people love that and some people hate it. Some, and they love it because they love seeing him hit it. And the other people who hate it, hate the fact that golf in some cases may now be being turned into just who can hit the ball the furthest, which I suppose it kind of was already, but this is now a new level. Well, two things. First of all, nobody ever admits using steroids. Um, you, you didn't seem to want to mention the term, but that's generally when a guy goes from scrawny little kid to Hulk Hogan in 15 minutes, there's some help. That said, he may, he, you know, he may, he's a big kid. He may have done it all through supplements, but he sure got a lot stronger. 
here's the interesting thing to watch for. Like we all know golfers are um, far better shape than they were 15 years ago. They're all in the gym. They're all in tip top shape. And I think the old days was probably like hockey players who, who went to training camp for a month, 15 pounds overweight because it was training camp to get in shape to be able to play. These guys are in tip top shape all the time. Now in a lot of sports, whether it's basketball, baseball, does not so much, but hockey, it's a copycat sport. One team wins a specific way. Another team starts doing it. And that's the way the trend goes. It will be interesting to see if a guy like Mackenzie Hughes shows up looking like a linebacker next year, because that's the way he wants to be able to hit the ball. That said, uh, uh, DeChambeau, I think that's how you say it. Yep. Um, he can also putt and he can also chip. It's not all about just blasting the ball 350 yards every time you step up to it. I mean, the kid can play the game. He's got a bit of a touch around the green and he sunk an eagle putt on like 13 or something like that and made it really interesting. But, you know, he's got, he's got the rest of the game. He's not just a guy that crushes it and can't do the rest of it. I mean, obviously, he was six under. I think it was six under he finished up. And the only guy under par at the U.S. Open, because those courses are set up so tough. So we'll see how, see how he ends up. We'll see if some of the other guys bulk up over the winter. Yeah, that'll be interesting. And, and I mean, where he, I mean, some guys were actually on certain drives hitting it further than him. Where his incredible strength seemed to come into play was because, as you mentioned, the rough is so deep. In some places they said it was like six inches deep. If you've got the strength to be able to power through that because it just slows the club right down. If you're a strong enough guy, that rough no longer is as much of a problem to you as if you're someone who doesn't have the strength to get through it. That that really was, I think, what separated him because he wasn't hitting the fairways all the time. He was just, he knew that he was strong enough that even if he missed, it wasn't going to be as punitive to him as it was to other guys because he could power his way through it. And so, hey, let's just let her rip. Well, to give you an example of how bad the rough was, and I forget the player's name. I should memorize this stuff, but I don't. Um, on the first hole, he went into the rough. They could, And it wasn't like in the woods or anything. It was just in the rough. You have a three-minute time period to find your ball. They couldn't find it. He had to go back to the tee and hit a provisional and start it off with a double bogey. That's how deep the rough was. They had an idea where it landed and couldn't find it. So you're right. How strong do you have to be to hit it out of that stuff? Well, I'll tell you the other one, Don, is that a number of years ago to this, to, to sort of back onto this story, uh, a number of years ago, 2003, I think it was, which was the first time that the Canadian Open came back to Hamilton in a long, long time. They decided that they were worried that the course was going to get torn up by these top notch golfers from around the world. And they did the same thing. They narrowed the fairways and grew the rough to an extraordinary length and thickness and it was it was hard on the golfers but i ended up playing i got able to play on media day and they said oh you can go and hit off the front tees if you want i says why am i hitting off the front tees if i'm going to play this course and i'm a terrible golfer as you know and anyone who's seen me play knows (laughs) but as i said if i'm going to play this course i don't care what score i get i want to play off the tips i want to see what the pros are having to do that's why i'm playing today i'm not playing for a good score i want to see what it's like to have to play this course And the rough was so thick then 
that I think I probably lost 25 balls because if you hit the ball off the tee into the rough, you, you couldn't find it. You, you, it was gone. It was just, it was absolutely buried in there. And I wasn't even worried about hitting the ball out of the rough because I could never find the ball in the rough. And that's, that's what they were, that's what it was like there. And they even had a case yesterday because there was no fans. They had a case of a guy losing his ball in the rough, which I've never seen before on the PGA tour. Well, that's why I say this on the first hole and these, and on the tour, they have spotters. I mean, they had some idea where the guy landed versus when you played in Hamilton and nobody on the planet knew where you landed. These guys have spotters so you can at least have a shot at finding it. So can you imagine how sick it was? So my question for you then, because you did watch and you, you saw, and, and anyone else who was watching knows what we're talking about. This course that they set up, Winged Foot was the name of the course. It's in New York, just outside New York City. It is, um, if you're a skier, this would have been a triple black diamond hill. This is, if you were, take your pick of whatever else you do, this is the hardest setup that you could possibly make it. And I'm wondering, Don, only two guys, was it finished below par for the entire week? Was he the only guy for the whole week One. below par? The One, okay. Only, the only guy that ended up under par. So six under. Yeah, no, he was, he was, ter- he was terrific. But the fact that you've got the best golfers and this is a major, so literally the best golfers in the world are playing and are struggling. When you watch golf on TV and you're watching these guys, do you prefer to watch them get into situations like this where it's so hard that they look pedestrian? Or would you prefer to watch a tournament like two or three weeks ago when Dustin Johnson finishes 30 under and looks amazing sinking everything? Well, I like I like the odd tournament where a guy like Dustin Johnson would golf at Copetown Woods and basically eat it up because you know it's it's a beautiful golf course, but it's designed for guys like you and I to play, and he can hit it from anywhere. So once in a while, I don't mind seeing these guys be able to drive the odd par, par four, but on a, in a big tournament when the very best are there, you want them to have to show their very best. For many years, uh, the Masters is like that. You've been fortunate enough to be to Augusta. The the Masters is is a fair golf course. The U.S. Open traditionally is almost unfair. Um, now, the FedEx Championship with the thirty golfers uh, two weeks, two three weeks before that was tough, but fair. This thing is almost unfair when you have the elite golfers in the world playing in a, in a golf tournament and only one guy ends up under par. I think it speaks for himself. You know, we'd like talking about Mackenzie Hughes. Mac didn't make the cut. He was, I think six over on the front on the final day, double bogeyed the first one. Yeah. He had a great first day. Yeah. He had a great first day. And then the second day wind came up a little bit and everybody started to, But that, again, I look at this and Don, I think to myself, there's a part of me that says if I'm watching, for example, the NHL guys, uh, play hockey, I don't want them playing on crappy ice where the puck is bouncing all over just so I can say, well, let's see what these guys can really do now that they have a challenge in front of them. There's a part of me that says, a big part that says, I want to see them be able to show me what they can do at their best. And so in a sense, the U S open to me becomes 
not all that enjoyable because you can't really see these guys doing what they do best because it is almost, as you say, almost unfair. The flip side is, you know, it it kind of golf is for you and for me and for others who play who are not pros. It drives us bananas and makes us lose all confidence in ourselves and question our place in the world. And it's kind of fun to watch some of these guys who do it so well and so perfectly all the time face some of those same self-doubts and same questions and see how they deal with it. Yeah, (laughs) that's an interesting way to put it. Golf, to me, is the most humbling sport in the world. I mean, you can be the greatest uh, rock singer in the world, and you may not be able to play golf. You may be the greatest hockey player in the world, and you can't play golf. It's very humbling, and I have tremendous respect for the guys that can do it. But you're right, it kind of normalizes them a little bit. But that said, if you play play recreational golf, you look at those conditions, like you cited at Hamilton Golf and Country Club and then again yesterday, it's cruel and unusual punishment. Like none of us could play there. We just couldn't play there. I've, I, I, I wondered... It not matter what club I use consistently, I couldn't hit a 19 yard wide fairway with any kind of regularity, even if I screw it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I did wonder over the weekend as I watched what I would score and and let's put it this way. I don't come close to shooting a hundred at the best of times. I I mean, I don't come close to shooting a hundred. I am, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit I'm a terrible golfer. I don't golf very much. I get out there two or three times a year. And when I do, I hit two or three good shots in a round and the rest of the time I put the people around me at grave risk. Um, I have no idea what number it would be on a course like that, where even if you get it onto the green, unless you hit it in a very specific spot on the green, it's going to roll off the green. There, there are times, Don, I'm not being funny, I might have 15 putted on some of those greens. Well, I, the example I was going to use, Scott, and I golf a little bit more than you, but I'm not, I'm i certainly a long way from brilliant. I don't play much anymore, but I assure you that if we'd have played in that tournament or they said at the day after the media event, for example, said, okay, you guys can come. Don't worry about tee shots or getting to the green. We're just going to place your ball in the front of the green on every hole. And we wouldn't par the holes. Like we didn't have to get there. They just put our ball on the green. I don't think, we would, we could easily five and six, seven putt some of those greens, and the par threes. There's not a chance we three putt them. No, like and I, I, I even thought about it. If I took my three best golfing buddies who I knew could play the game, and they said you can have a f- team of four play best ball, which usually, you know, when you play a best ball at a tournament somewhere, if you go to somewhere. You know, what is the winning team that get that plays best ball usually come in? Like 10 under? Because you're, you know, it's yeah. designed to have a good score. 10 to 15 pretty, under is pretty common. Yeah, I, I'm very confident that if you took good golfers, not pros, but good golfers, and said we're playing best ball, not any group playing best ball would have made the cut. That's, you know, it's 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 crazy. It's And I, I say I'm... I kind of had a hard time watching it for that reason, only because it, I I just didn't see it as all that enjoyable to watch the best guys in the world not be able to be very good. 
That, I mean, that's why well, we watched them. That's yeah, I know. But not only would you not have made the cut, I don't think you'd have broke a hundred. I agree. I think it's that tough. I mean, there there would be holes there, and I think with me, it might. I'm not that uh, nimble anymore, but there'd be all kinds of holes on that course that you and I would look at and say, we can't drive the fairway. We can't hit it far enough. Don't worry about being straight enough. We can't hit it far enough to get it on the fairway. Like you look at where some of the tips are at, at Wingfoot. Like holy crap! I mean, play at Heron Point, and and the 18th is what 180 yards to clear the lake. That would be nothing there. I mean, there will be holes there that you you would be a 220 yard carry to get the fairway. Yeah, there's there's a reason why we watch the NFL and the CFL and the NHL and Major League Baseball, and we don't watch the low levels of the farm system traditionally because we want to see the best players playing their best. We don't. Well, we do. You and, know, and when the best players, when the best players in the NBA and the NHL and all the other uh, big time sports things are, we're watching the best against the best. Right in a golf tournament, you're watching the best against the best against a tough golf course. So it's very individual. But I, I agree with you. Like when I don't want to see hockey played on poor ice. Give us the best conditions in the world and let them go. Yeah. One other example I'll use is you know like one of the things that people who watch basketball love is a great alley oop. You know where where it's it's like it's yep. it's poetic. It's beautiful. The timing and the athleticism and everything else. Now imagine if you're watching something. And guys try 15 alley-oops and they fail every time. Are you looking at going, oh, that's great. That's That makes them look like morons. Or are you going, well, this is kind of stupid now. Why, why am I watching this if they're bad at this? And that's, again, I get it. I get it once a year. I, I, I get the idea behind it. And I get that the folks who put together the U.S. Open want to torment these guys for, you know, whatever reason they decided that that's what the U.S. Open is going to be. I'll take the Masters. Honestly, I'll take the Masters where, you know, another great event, but where if you play even normally good golf, you're going to at least look like you're a good golfer. And and to me, that's that's more interesting. Anyway, the backyard was great this year too, wasn't it? Don, Don, your backyard was great this summer, wasn't it? With COVID and everything else, you, you have a nice property there. It was, it was, this was the year for a backyard. Don Robertson, by the way, joining me. This was the year, wasn't it? It was great. It was. I'm sure it was a great year to have a pool. I don't have one, but it was. You know, the be, maybe the best part of the summer was no rain, and I, I had a six week vacation from cutting my grass. Yeah, we heard. But yeah, the backyard was great. <laughs> so, Don, you are a hockey guy first and foremost. I got to ask you this question because we're in the Stanley Cup Finals now. We are days away from the Conn Smythe Trophy being presented, along with the Stanley Cup, and. We hear all the time that the guy you need to have on your team, the difference maker in the NHL, is a stud horse defenseman who can play 30 minutes a game and dominate the game and shut down the other team and give you some offense and all that stuff. Your goalie is obviously maybe the biggest piece, but then we always hear that you need to have this defenseman. What are the Leafs hearing right now with Alex Peter Angelo, this guy that Detroit or uh, St. Louis? free agent. Everyone's get Peter Angelo. We need a guy like that. How come if that's the case, 
with one exception ever, a guy who fits that description has never won the Conn Smythe trophy. The one guy was Scott Stevens who won it back in 2000. There have been a couple other defensemen, Don, who won, but Duncan Keith won it in 2015. He was an offensive defenseman. Um, Scott Niedermeyer, offensive defenseman. Nick Lidstrom, he could do both, but he was an offensive guy as well. How come if that's the most important or one of the most important guys on the ice, they never are recognized as such? Because that's what general managers uh, covet the most. That's what makes them so popular. Yes, they're important. Can you win without them? Apparently. Chris Pronger was that. He was pretty good offensively, but he was, you know, you're right. The only guys who win it are offensive defensemen, but every general manager covets that great big six foot four mean SOB that can take care of your own end. Do they win? No, they're always the unsung heroes. I mean, I don't remember. He may have. Bob Gainey, who was considered one of the best defensive players in the National Hockey League during his tenure, I don't think he ever won, a, won the Conn Smythe Trophy. He did once, 1979. Yeah, 1979 he won, but that was the only time. And he's the. And if you look, he's really the only, as I scan down the list here, he would be the only guy that would fit into that category. Probably. Well, Claude Lemieux won, so maybe there's another guy you could put there. Um other than that, though, there's not a lot of those sort of defensive forwards as you're describing. No, but right, though. So as, as a GM, you need a great big stud defenseman that can shut down Sidney Crosby, Connor, Day, Connor McDavid, and those guys. And you need a shutdown line. And anybody knows anything about the game, those guys are as important as anybody. You need, because you, everybody's got somebody that can score some goals. When you get that far, you've got your goal scorers. You've got your guys that can tap them in, and you know their their offensive abilities are very important. But those guys, those guys that tap them in and everything else, are always considered, you know, always in the conversation about who should win the con Smythe, as are goalies. But every general manager will tell you, I want that stud defenseman that can shut down. Uh, the big line, and I need the forwards and a couple guys that will pay the price, be unsung heroes, or we can't win, and they never get consideration for the con Smythe, for the most part. Well, they don't. And, and you know, somebody mentioned the other day that the last MVP, last NFL MVP who was a defensive player was Lawrence Taylor, and that was, I believe, in the 80s. I mean, doesn't mean, doesn't seem to matter the sport defense just doesn't, isn't sexy, I suppose. Although in every sport we hear defense wins championships always made me wonder how it is the defense wins championships. And we point to goalies and defensemen, stud defensemen as the cornerstones you have to have. And then we never honor them for what they, what we say is the greatness that they bring. That's that, that's because usually the media vote on it and the, and the, the media like sexy. Hence defense, the speedo um, discussion. Sh- shut down, shut down forwards. Shut down <laughs> forwards are generally not in the conversation. A goalie stands on his head. Rogie Vashon. Uh, why don't I date myself a bit? Ken Dryden, Steve Penny. You know what I mean? Like uh, Mark Ambrodeur, uh, Patrick Waugh. Um, those guys. 
they're always in the conversation because if they play over their head, Carey Price, Hamilton Bulldogs, if they play over their head, they they can sing, single-handedly give them their team a chance to win. A defensive defenseman and a shutdown forward is never per- perceived as, by the general public as the gateway to success. Just not sexy enough. Yeah, I, 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 I find it. I find it so surprising though, because again, it's, it's not like this is something that is hidden from view. I mean, even though it may not be sexy in that way, you hear about it nonstop. You hear about it all the time about how important this is. And you mentioned, you know, a guy like Chris Pronger or, um, you know, look at, look at in recent years. And I mean, it doesn't really matter who pick your team and probably they've had one or two of those guys. You know, Peter Angelo was St. Louis last year when they won the cup. And, um, you know, the one team that didn't was the last time the Penguins won when they had all those injuries in the blue line and they just figured out a way to do it. But by and large, you've got, you know, when, when the Kings won, it was Drew Doughty and, and the Blackhawks had, had, you know, well, Duncan Keith was an offensive guy, but they had top defensemen and Boston Bruins with Chara. And, you know, it's just, it's there. And it's all we hear about around here right now. The Leafs need that guy. Leafs need that guy. And you wonder if they get that guy, if he'll then really be appreciated anyway, or if he'll just be big time second fiddle behind Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and John Tavares. Well, who says that Leafs need that guy? Like the, like the media reports say the Leafs need that guy, and they do need that guy. They've had that guy before. Uh, um, Larry Murphy, who was offensive, but pretty solid defensively. I mean, when you can't win, you got to find a hole in the lineup. You can't find a hole in the lineup in the Leafs, in the Leafs offensively. But the problem with the offense, it all comes from the defense, right? Like if you haven't got defensemen that can move in the puck or clear the zone, doesn't matter how many goals Austin Matthews and Mitch Meyer can score. If, if the defense can't keep it out of their own end and get them the puck, nothing can happen offensively. And it all comes off smart defensemen. I'll, I'll give you a good example. When you talk about who, who appreciates them, and I'll pay more attention tonight, but listen to guys like Brian Burke. Like You can list a, listen to a lot of the other pundits, and they talk about offense. They talk about you know puck separation and everything else. You listen to Brian Burke. He, he starts talking about guys that are playing very effectively, doing a great job, form, and you know, obviously Burke's former GM, he talks about defensive guys. He talks about the job they're doing and how effective it is and how important it is. I'd like to listen to Brian Burke, who's been the GM of a Stanley Cup championship team, versus some other people who've never played in the, in the National Hockey League. I mean, Burke gets it. He knows those detailed guys are the key to success. But will they ever win a con Smythe? No, there's a better chance you will. Yeah, and we know what the chances of that are. About the same as winning the U.S. Open in a Speedo, which I don't even know what the chances of that would be, but not good. I I shouldn't have brought that up. That was a bad analogy. (laughs) Steve Stamkos is the captain of the Tampa... Tampa Bay Lightning that are in the Stanley Cup Finals right now. They are down by a game. They play tonight. We don't know what's going to happen in this series, but he has not played in these playoffs, or at least from the very beginning, because he's been injured. But tradition is that if a team wins the Stanley Cup, the captain 
accepts the trophy. If Tampa Bay was to win the Stanley Cup this year, even though he hasn't played and might be in street clothes, do you send Steve Stamkos to grab the Stanley Cup and accept it from Gary Bettman, or do you tell one of his assistants to do it and you stay out of the way? Well, let me tell you how that'll work. First of all, he may play tonight. Uh, I'm not near a TV. I'm on my front deck. But uh, I would suggest to you that Steven Stamkos will come out in full uniform and accept the cup. That's how that will play. He's their captain, and that's what he should do. Even if, and you're right, he could play either tonight or somewhere else in the series, but even if he doesn't play a minute this series or these playoffs, you would still say that would be the role for him as opposed to the guys who have played and bruised up and wrecked their bodies? He's their captain. He didn't quit the team. I mean, he's their leader, um, and he's the captain of the team. Let me tell you a quick story. We were uh, we won we hosted the Allen Cup in Dundas in 2014 and won it in double overtime against Claren, uh, Clarenville. And I have never seen anything like this before in my life. In double overtime, we score the winning goal, Randy Rowe, and uh, off a faceoff from Justin Davis. And when I look out on the ice, I'm, I stood on the bench and just watched the building. I didn't move. I just everybody was on the ice. Everybody's going nuts, and I just went uh, just. I have my own private thoughts, right, on what had gone on and all the work that went into it. And I looked out there, and we had four players who had not uh, had not dressed for that game on the ice in full uniform. I had no idea they were in full uniform. I don't know who told them to do that. I don't know who thought it was a good idea. Might have been Ryan Christie, our captains. Might have been on their own. But had we lost, they were in full uniform. They were on the ice for the presentation. And I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen because I felt bad they hadn't played. I wanted them to feel part of the team, and they were all there. I don't know if the National Hockey League do that. I don't know if guys that have played two or three games in the finals that don't dress for the final game get dressed in their gear. I mean, Scotty Bowman got dressed when uh, Detroit won the Stanley Cup the last game he coached put his skates on and skated around Stanley Cup. I thought that was pretty cool. So for our guys to do it, it may be a hidden hockey deal that I'm not aware of, but based on what I saw in 2014 with Steve Hurst out on the ice uh, participating and he very deservedly, I would think Steve Stamkos would go on the ice in his uniform and accept the Stanley Cup. What would have happened That's with your happen. What would have happened with your four guys? Had you lost that game in double overtime, how fast would they have had to get undressed and I, get out of the way? I or didn't you even know they had all their gear on. I guess they'd have probably went in and sat down with the boys in uniform because they were all together. It was a wonderful team. Championship teams are wonderful teams. And they'd have probably sat and had a beer in the dressing room. I mean, I guess that's what would have happened. I don't know. But boy, were they ever ready for us to win it. And they, they were now... You know, you've been to Greitmeyer Arena. I was standing on the bench. I didn't look behind. They may have all been standing back there in uniform for all I know. But, boy, I'll tell you, we scored the goal. I looked out and I went, holy crap. Like I'm seeing guys that didn't dress. I, I mean, it, it, it would bring a tear to an old guy's eye. I mean, they just stood there and watched the arena and watched it all unfold and went, good for you guys. Because they were such a big part of it. So, 
maybe that's the unwritten rule since 2014 and the Dundas Real McCoys. But uh, I think Stamkos would probably go out in full gear and accept the trophy. And, you know, I listened to a bunch of pundits on the weekend saying that Dallas would be lucky to win one game. Well, so far they've, they've won the only one they've played, right? Because um, they think Tampa's going to run away with this thing. But if if, uh, if it unfolds and Tampa win, I think that my prediction would be Stamkos will get it in full gear if he's not playing. I, I think it says I think something. That was, that was the question, really. Yeah, that was the question. I mean, look, if he plays, it, it, it's, it's a moot point because then, of course, he's going to be the guy who gets it because that's what the captain does. But I, I think it would say an awful lot about what the other players think of a guy who was their captain. I mean, really, if because if, even if you're the captain, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm sure there's been captains dawn of teams who have neither been liked nor respected, but they were chosen captain by the coach or whatever else. And, you know, so be it. But I, I think if he was the guy who, if that happened, who got the trophy, I think it would speak rather large volumes about what the other players thought about the guy. Cause you know, otherwise you would think, give it to let the guy who's been out here busting his body for the whole time collect it. Uh, I think it would, it would say an awful lot about what people think about Steve Stamkos if that happened. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know the dynamic of Norwood Jew of the Tampa Bay dressing room. But if he's their captain, and it's he, he he didn't just become the captain of Christmas this year. I mean, he's been the captain for a couple of years. After he, you know, signed signed and decided to stay in Tampa Bay, you know, he made a commitment to the team and everybody else. But it'll be interesting. In 1987, when we won Stanley Cup, the Allen Cup, the Brantford Mots Comados in 87, Wayne Smith was our captain. He had a knee injury, couldn't play in the finals. Um, Graham Nicholson was the captain, and uh, we won the Allen Cup. And I looked up in the corner, and Wayne Smith sat there, and he eventually made his way down to the ice. And I got, when I thought of thought of our victory in 19, uh, 2014, I got thinking, wouldn't that have been cool? Because Wayne Smith was our captain for three years, and he sat in the stands. Wouldn't that have been cool? He could have certainly put his gear on and come out and accepted the uh, Allen Cup with Graham Nicholson, our acting captain. I thought that would have been a wonderful tribute, and I think back and go, that would have been the best thing that could have happened. So I don't know how Stamkos became the captain of the Lightning, but he's their leader, and he should accept the trophy on their, uh, on behalf of their team. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, the real question, what do you call an animal that wears Speedos? Uh, disconcerting, I think would be the answer for that one. <laughs> and boom goes the dynamite. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.